You're listening to the Helpful NPCs podcast. We offer ideas to make your tabletop role-playing games even better. The Helpful NPCs podcast is not safe for work. Our immaturity is matched only by our vulgarity. You can check us out at helpfulnpcs.com or contact us at info at helpfulnpcs.com. This is Chapter 2, Part 2, The Core 4. In this chapter, we're going to talk about the four classes that we consider to be core to the playstyles of the game of Dungeons & Dragons. If you haven't listened to Part 1, you can head over there, in which we will be talking about races and backgrounds. And if you want to hear about all the other classes that are available, you can head over to Part 3. So the first thing I would say is today's introduction is options are optional. The game is modular and heavily customizable, which means you don't have to let anything at your table as a dungeon master just because a player likes it or wants to play it. And in fact, I would argue limiting the classes or archetypes available in your game can give your specific campaign a much more specific flavor. So I have a game I'm planning right now. I wanted it to be really martial heavy and I wanted it to be very sort of old school. So the wizard and the cleric are the only main spellcasters available, but all seven of the primarily martial classes are available and you can switch it up however you want. So that being said, Jake, what's a character class exactly? So the first thing about character classes is what they are not. A character class is not your job. Mm. In in D&D, your job is adventurer, mm. right? Yes. Hero for hire, whatever whatever you want to describe it. You're- and we even talked about extensively in our last uh, chapter about your job on the team, which is not the same thing as what your character class is. Right. And your class is both a metagame representation of the type of character you're playing, um, but it also can inform how your character interacts within the game world. Mm-hmm. So a fighter might not be easy, easily distinguishable if you put them in a crowd of people. A cleric who's wearing the holy robes of their order, people are going to point to and say, that's a cleric. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not precisely your job, but it can inform how you interact with the game world and how the game world interacts with you. Mm -hmm. Generally, classes are a very flexible set of abilities and, uh, tropes, which are broken down into more specific, uh, archetypes. Yeah. And one of the things to note is that character classes are for the player characters. Tom and I had a situation when we were playing a Curse of Strahd game once, which is like a gothic horror game. And one of the characters was a demon hunter. And when Tom mentioned that she knew some spells, I said, oh, so is she also a wizard or something? And Tom said, no, she just knows some spells. So... Just because the only player character that knows the invisibility spell is a wizard doesn't mean that's the only character in the setting that knows the invisibility spell. If I want to make a baker who knows a couple of fire spells to make being a baker easier. He doesn't literally need to have a class of wizard or sorcerer. He didn't need to go to wizard college. I can just decide this is a feature of this baker. This baker knows a couple of spells and that's totally fine. Previously... In the 
edition that I think we mostly played, third edition, there mm-hmm. was a very symmetrical design paradigm where pay- player characters and non-player characters were designed and created in the exact same way, which caused a number of problems, um, including just uh, a, a far too much complexity for GMs. Mm-hmm. So 5th edition has moved away from that, which is, again, very fortuitous, ex- much better game design, in my opinion. If, if you're a new GM, just be very thankful that you did not have to read the wall of text that was a 3.5 edition stat block. Now you gotta earn your stripes. Okay, so all that nerdery aside, let's delve into the actual things that you can play. So I'm going to start with what I call the core four classes. They are the fighter, the wizard, the rogue, and the cleric. So why are these four classes considered core? Well, they show up repeatedly in video games. They show up in other tabletop games. The idea of fighter, wizard, cleric, rogue, it might be familiar to people who've never actually played Dungeons and Dragons. They inspired, those four inspired that tank and spank style of game that you see in MMORPGs, which is, you know, you've got one tank and one support character and then two characters blasting the boss. That's not to say that you have to play your four characters in that tank and spank style, but just know that that's 100% where they came from. And those four represent four sort of distinct approaches to adventuring. Now, one thing I want to note in Dungeons and Dragons, we don't normally get too far into the mechanics, but the current iteration of Dungeons and Dragons has what you call a short rest and a long rest. A uh, short rest is basically an hour break and a long rest is a night's sleep. And a, some abilities recharge on a short rest, some abilities recharge on a long rest. And a lot of how these four classes function today is actually defined by that short rest, long rest mechanic. So Jake, talk to me a little bit about the fighter. So the fighter is kind of the original D&D class. Mm-hmm. So when role-playing games made their switch from being a war game to being a role-playing game, the the first thing that people wanted to play, the first thing that Gygax wanted to play was a fighting man. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to read now, copy-pasted right from the wiki. The original intention of a fighting man was not to be an archetype unto itself, but a broad category of warrior types, gallant knights, roguish mercenaries, Amazon warrior women, brutish barbarians, charming swashbucklers, etc., etc. So a lot of the fighting man was inspired by Conan the Barbarian, uh, Errol Flynn, uh, the knights of uh, medieval Europe are another example of the fighting man. All of these different types of fighting martial characters were encapsulated in the original fighting man. And it should be noted that a fighting man, I actually like the word fighting man better than fighter, is not meant inherently to say, oh, women can't be fighters. But it's sort of a throwback, I think, to like a man at arms or a man of the world or a man of action, like a fighting enthusiast. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the fighter, as it became known, is designed to take somebody from a nobody 
to the best warrior in the land, mm-hmm. right? That is the progression of that class. Absolutely. I have a note here for my currently a well-designed class with lots of great options. So Ryan the f- likes the fighter. The fighter is really well done in the current iteration of Dungeons and Dragons. The last couple of iterations of it in different versions were not fantastic. Today, there are several really cool variations. The champion is not one of them. Uh, but the Arcane Archer is pretty cool. The uh, Eldritch Knight is cool. But the big one is the Battlemaster Fighter. And in fact, to most players of D&D today, Battlemaster and Fighter are actually synonymous. Battlemaster gets a lot of cool maneuvers and they they recharge those on a short rest. So absolutely, that is the fighter that is going to be most often recommended. So moving from that, let me discuss the wizard with you because the wizard has kind of an odd history in Dungeons and Dragons. The wizard was initially the magic user and the first creators of Dungeons and Dragons really did not like magic using player characters, which is why the entire inspiration for the wizard comes from a story by Jack Vance called uh, Mazirian the Magnificent. And the entire story is this arrogant wizard trying to chase this young lady down because he wants to enslave her and her tricking him into uh, spending all of his magic and then him getting clubbed to death at the end. And it tells me a lot about the intentions for the wizard class that this was the story that they used when they were trying to figure out how to turn spellcasting into a game. So today, the magic user has turned into the wizard, and the wizard is like the nerd of Dungeons & Dragons. The wizard's entire thing is that they memorize spells, which are these weird, complex formulas, and they sort of hold them in their mind and then use them, and then the sort of the slot of the spell is taken up. So this is what we call Vancean-style spellcasting, which is I have a limited number of slots of these different levels, that I can use to cast these different spells. I I literally have only so much space in my brain to Mm -hmm. hold so many spells, and once I cast the spell, it's gone, and I have to re-memorize it. And as they get... That's not how it works in 5th edition. Close enough. And as they get higher level or more experience, these nerds can memorize more spells and more complicated spells and thus perform stronger magic. Now, it's really important to note we talked about resting. And again, this is a core conceit of the game. Wizards can do almost anything, but they can only do a little bit of it at a time, and they can only know how to do a little bit of it. So they are in the dungeon often to find spells. So you find scrolls of spells in dungeons off of monsters and wizards memorize these and learn new spells, which they can again only memorize so many at a time. And this is a very core part of the game. Uh, The wizard, unlike the fighter, needs to take what we call a long rest. Basically, they need to sleep overnight before they can memorize new spells. So to be a wizard, you have to constantly be careful because if you burn all your spell slots, you're going to be useless later. And so the wizard is very based on that Mazirian, the Magnificent, and uh, trying not to burn up all your spells and get clubbed to death. And Tom did mention it has gotten away from that a little bit in yeah. the more recent editions because they realized playing a wizard, if you do burn all your spells, is really, really, really boring. Yes. Um, 
So you do have like cantrips now, which you technically At never run magic, out of. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's a, changed a little bit. A little which bit. Is probably better for the game in general, but <sighs> I eh. don't know. I kind of miss the old school. Like when you're not casting spells, you gotta stick. <laughs> so Tom, in a similar tradition to the wizard, uh, talk to us about how the cleric came to be. Initially, the cleric was a class that was homebrewed to battle the nefarious Sir Fang, a wizard vampire. No, he was a fighting man that became a vampire. I just looked that up. Oh, really? I thought he was a wizard also. So a huge part of Dungeons and Dragons, I'll, I'll insert myself in that a little bit, is it started with some guys playing a game they had mostly made up on the spot with their friends. So a lot of what we see was made as a part of those initial games. Yes. So the cleric was created as an undead hunter inspired by hammer horror films, um, drawing together elements of the Knights Templar, faith healers, and paganism to create what is the first support class. Uh, It should be noted the initial cleric class was very much a, essentially a Catholic priest, Mm -hmm. um, and has gradually expanded to encompass uh, various fictional religions from that. It's much more versatile than that nowadays, um, and they get different, uh, you know, domains based on the gods they worship and it uses Vancian casting to, um, support their allies and do various little trickies. So they're a little bit stronger than the wizard. It should be said when they are, um, out of spells more or less, but they have that same limitation of they want to constantly be tracking their spells to make sure they don't run out. And in fact, initially, they didn't even cast as many spells or as high of level as uh, magic users or wizards today, but that kind of changed over the years. And then from there, I will talk about the fourth core class, my personal favorite class, the Rogue. The Rogue is the newest of these sort of core four and it was initially the thief and it was inspired by sort of scoundrel heroes um like kugel the clever which is another character jack vance came up with and the character gray mauser if you've ever read fard and gray mauser and the rogue in every iteration of D&D is effectively a specialist who has special skills to get them through the dungeon or special tricks. Now, today, they're largely known for running around stabbing things because they're awesome at stabbing things in the back. Today, they've got a special mechanic where they've got sneak attack that lets them do damage to specific foes. And What the rogue does that the other classes don't quite do is specialize in the exploration aspect of the game through their skills. So the rogue is the person who's going to scout ahead typically, or they're the person that's going to pick the monster's pocket, or they're the person that's going to find traps. Their big thing is that they interact with the setting in a different way from the other classes. Now, it should be noted the rogue's damage mechanic does not require a long or short rest to be effective. So to talk a little bit about the interactions of the four, 
Fighters and rogues are expected to use their abilities fairly consistently. Rogues a little more consistently than fighters. They either don't have limitations like the rogue or they can use their abilities frequently like the fighter who just needs a short rest. Wizards and clerics have much more powerful abilities than rogues and fighters, but they're limited in their spell slots and they are limited by having to rest to recuperate their spells. And even to this day, those four are really made to work together. That was chapter two, part two, the core four. If you're interested in hearing our opinions on the races and backgrounds that are available in Dungeons and Dragons, you can head over to part one. And if you're interested in hearing about the other classes that are available in the game past these core four, you can head over to part three. Thank you for listening to the Helpful NPCs podcast. For more content, check us out at HelpfulNPCs.com. If you have any feedback or requests for topics, you can reach us at info at HelpfulNPCs.com. 